Hi, everybody. My name is Johnny, and I'm an alcoholic. I, uh... I, uh, I'm glad to be here tonight, and I'm glad to be sober. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to thank the committee for allowing me the privilege of participating in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I have always considered it some type of a privilege to be allowed to come and sit with you good people. Never one time ever dreaming, as I said in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I would ever be given the privilege to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope, as long as I live, uh, that I always consider it a privilege to be allowed to come in and sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether I do anything here or not. I hope I never get so complacent and so egotistical and so self-satisfied in my sobriety that I think I have some right to be here just because I don't drink alcohol anymore. <laughs> that I have a right to all the benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous just because I don't drink and put my butt in a chair once in a while. I hope I never get that complacent. So I consider it a privilege to be here, and I thank the committee for allowing me to come. And uh, uh, I want to let you know right off the gate that I'm by no wild stretch of the imagination a consultant or a counselor or an authority on a program of Alcoholics Anonymous or the disease. I'm an example, good, bad, or indifferent, that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works. It has been necessary for me to drink anything, swallow anything, smoke anything, or stick anything in my arm. Since the fourth day of November, 1959, which is a long time without drink. Well, I'd like to be able to stand here and take some credit for that. But if I'd have known where I was coming in 1959, I wouldn't have come. Uh, I was an alcoholic. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I had no way of knowing. But I'm glad I was here. And if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous tonight, I hope the word being sober doesn't offend you as bad it offended me that day when I said in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, I said in that meeting, and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous talked to me about being sober. And right away, uh, I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous had nothing to offer me. And the reason I knew that is because I was as physically sober when I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous as I am right now. Physically sober. But that had always seemed to be my problem. <laughs> if I could have stayed loaded forever, I'd have never came to Alcoholics not. <laughs> I kept getting interrupted out there on my happy road of destiny. Uh, and people in little black and white cars, they just seemed to have an affinity for telling me to get in for some reason or other. Just... <laughs> Isn't that amazing how people keep inventing things to help us? I mean, they do. I mean, they keep dreaming up stuff to help us. Out in my part of the world, they got a thing called intervention. They think that's new. The Los Angeles County Sheriff knew about it in 1940. I mean, you, you live the way I live out there. They're coming and intervene in your life, too. I'll guarantee you that. But you know, I haven't had a, a drink of alcohol or any of those other goofy things in my system since I came here. And I've learned uh, a couple of things about the phraseology that goes on sometimes in Alcoholics Anonymous that newcomers hear or don't hear. Because it seemed like only yesterday I said in that first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I heard the word sober. And I thought they don't have nothing to offer me. I'm sure somewhere during that afternoon these people talked about sobriety. And I've come to understand there's an entirely different meaning between the two words. Sometimes they're not even synonymous. Sober means to me, basically, 
that I don't have any alcoholic chemicals in my system. That's what being sober means, physically sober. Living in sobriety is the ability to live peacefully and comfortably and joyously with me and you and God. That's all. And if I couldn't do that, I'd probably be drunk before I got home tomorrow. Somewhere in the world I had to learn to do that. I was never able to do that before I came here. Now, I'm extremely pleased to be here tonight fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> and the reason I tell you that is because the longer I stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more necessary it becomes for me to remember from whence I came. And I never want to forget that a little over 35 years ago tonight, I was crawling around on my hands and knees in a cell in solitary confinement at a maximum security penitentiary just in the end out of total insanity. Now, because of a loving God as he expressed himself through this program called Alcoholics Anonymous, it's no longer necessary tonight for me to crawl around on my hands and eat like an animal. If I get nothing else out of this deal at all, I could live with that for a long time. It makes me feel good. Now, I'd like to be able to stand here tonight without a shadow of doubt in my mind and tell you the popular theory that that's where alcohol and drugs took me to. Oh, I would love to be able to tell you that. That's where I took me to. The only thing that alcohol ever did in my life, it kept me alive long enough to get to alcoholics not. I'm as sure as I'm standing here, if I hadn't taken a drink of alcohol, I'd have blown my brains out before I was nine years old. I've always been some type of emotional misfit. I never seemed to belong in the world. I don't know what was going on. And I was angry, and I was hostile, and I was bitter, and I didn't fit nowhere, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't like anybody or anything. And I knew that somewhere down deep in my life, there was something that was missing in my life, and I had to find the answer to it. But I didn't know what it was. And I knew as much about alcohol when I was six years old as I know tonight. Alcohol has never been a mystery in my life. Everybody in my family drank it, but that doesn't make me an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because I drank it, not because they drank it. See, if that was the case, if I was an alcoholic because my family drank, if that was a popular theory, how come my brother's not an alcoholic? My older brother's not, he's a weird dude, but he's not an alcoholic. He's strange. I tell you, my brother's strange. My brother and I went out one time to get drunk. Well, we went out. I went out to get drunk. My brother and I, brother went with me. He took two drinks and quit. That's the last time I ever went out with him, I'll tell you that. But I asked him, I said, why are you quitting? He says, I'm starting to feel it. I thought that's when you stuck it into overdrive. I didn't know that's when you knocked it off, for God's sake, but that's my brother. I watch these people sit around and drink whiskey. I watch my uncle drink whiskey and go to penitentiary. I watched my aunt drink whiskey and work in those houses on the other side of the tracks. I watched mom drink whiskey and beat up dad. I watched dad drink whiskey and beat up mom. They both got drunk and beat me up. I saw what whiskey did to people. And I said back there, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be better than they are. I'm going to step out there and have something, do something, be something, I guess. I don't know what I thought. But one day sitting on the back porch of my grandpa's house, something magnificent happened to me. I didn't know it at that particular time what it was that happened to me. That doesn't happen to everybody that it happened to, I suppose. I didn't know that my life was going to take a change that day. And uh, it was going to, the next 20 years, was going to lead me into the gates of insanity and death and beyond. I didn't know that because I watched my grandpa stash his jug. And when my grandpa left, I went over and took a drink of alcohol. Now, what happened to me in the next couple of minutes of my life is what makes me an alcoholic. Not the next 20 years of mayhem that I created or the quantities of alcohol that I consumed into my system. I have some type of an abnormal reaction to alcohol. Everybody who drinks doesn't have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. 
It's a known fact that only alcoholics of my type, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, have this fantastic abnormal reaction to alcohol. That alcohol went down inside of me and kind of stilled the screaming madness. It took me from the black pit of nothingness, stood me into the gray fringes of the business of living. It installed in me some type of arrogance. It said, damn you world, it's all right. I'm not good enough to be around the good people, but I'm too good to be around the bad people. It's okay right here. That's what alcohol did for me. That thing wouldn't be bad enough. I could live with that. But what baffled me for the next 20 years of my life was this thing that kicked in right behind it, a thing called the phenomenon of craving. That once I take a drink of alcohol, I can't quit drinking. I have never been able to quit drinking. Right up to this very instant in my life, I have not quit drinking. I've always had to be stopped from drinking. I don't know how to stop. I hear people with all these phenomenal ideas. Put the plug in the jug in your seat and seat. Yes, that worked for some folks. I can only share my experience, strength, and hope with you. A guy asked me at the home group the other night. He said, I don't know how to quit drinking. I quit drinking. What do you think I ought to do? And I said, hit a cop in the mouth. <laughs> he said, what will that do? And I said, I'll get you stopped for about three days. I don't know what I'll do after that. But, uh, it's no big mystery to me. I mean, <laughs> I took a drink of alcohol. And three days later, they pulled me out from underneath the bridge and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to Hutchison State Reform School. Twenty years later, I took a drink of alcohol. They pulled me out of a car and Compton stood me in front of a judge and sent me to 20 years in the penitentiary. That's what happened to me when I drank. I got drunk and went places. <laughs> I, I just travel around out there, man. I went, I went from reform school to reform school to junior penitentiary to penitentiary to nut houses. Now they call them treatment centers. <laughs> Personally, I like Nuthouse myself. I mean, a little more macho. I mean, I, really, I mean, you get a little more mileage out of one of these deals, man. Alcoholics Anonymous sitting around. You get a little more juice sitting around one of them discussion meetings in the club saying, I was in the stadium saying, asylum. They go, wow. The guy down next to you said, I did 30 days in the care unit. They say, shut up. I don't know about you. I'm sitting on a street corner when I'm 10 or 11 years old. I'm on a parole from a reform school. I'm drinking a bottle of Marco Petri red wine, which was my drink. So I start on wine work down. That ain't easy. And most of you have never heard of Marco Petri red wine. And the reason you've never heard of it is because it's the experimental stage of the Thunderbird. That's why you never heard of it. I tell you how bad it was. It's so bad I never saw a grape. It is bad stuff. Work. Oh, I can tell you. That's the only thing I ever found that would hang me without a rope. I'll tell you that. That's not good. Well, I'll tell you how bad it was. I don't know. Uh, I like to play golf every once in a while. I go down to the desert around my house and play golf. And one time I was down there having dinner in a real fancy restaurant. And uh, one of them restaurants where they had one of them guys in a tuxedo standing over there with a corkscrew hanging around his neck. And somebody told me he was a wine steward. And this is my big thing because I've been telling these people about Marco Petri and nobody believes me. Nobody believes there's such a thing as Marco Petri red wine. They've been looking for it for 30 years and can't find it. And so I call this guy over. Come here. He wandered over and I said, uh, you ever heard of Marco Petri red wine? He said, why, sure I have. He said, but I don't know anybody who ever drank who ever lived to talk about it. Well, I don't know about you, but if you're cutting up and you got a little... Magnificence of yourself going at that moment. You can't let nothing like that ride by. So I looked at him and said, you don't seem to understand, man. I used to drink it by the gallons. He said, sure, you did. And we're over and stood in the corner. 
with a little corkscrew and his thing over his arm, and he watched me. And all night, every time I saw him looking at me, I'd do things like this. <laughs> Kept him on his toes, I'll tell you that. But I'm sitting on this street corner, I'm drinking this stuff, and I hear stuff in alcoholics now I don't understand. Say, just quit working. No, it didn't. It ain't ever quit working. It just never took me where I wanted to take me. That's all, because I never wanted to be just all right. I wanted to be gone somewhere. Now, I wanted to be caught up in the afterburners of the spaceship that brought me here, I guess. I don't know. I'm going to go. And I'm sitting on this street corner, and this guy, uh, we're drinking this stuff, and it ain't doing what I wanted to do. And the guy said, you ought to try these. And he gave me some pills. Now, I don't remember saying to him, what are those? <laughs> Will they bother me if I take them? <laughs> I just <laughs> took them. Thank God they weren't X-Lax. That's all I can say. Now, we have a whole new 12-step program called Laxatives Anonymous, I suppose. I could be standing here tonight as the adult child of a laxative taker. I would have been functional, but Mother sat on the toilet all the time when I was little. It worked. Sitting on that same street corner a couple of years later on a furlough from another reform school, I'm eating these pellets and I'm drinking this wine and it ain't doing what I want it to do, and, and a guy stuck a needle in my arm. And for the next 14 years of my life, I stuck needles in my arm and ran in and out of institutions. That's what I do. So I live out on the streets, and I do what people like me who live in the streets do. I destroy everything that comes in contact with me. There's a good reason for that. You see, I'm a taker. I'm a taker of things, and I'm a user of people. So therefore, I'm a loser. I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, and I'm self-serving, and i got an ego bigger in this whole room. I spent my entire lifetime before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and for a long time after I was here, without a conscious thought or a conscious concern for any other human being who lived upon the face of this earth. I was not interested in you at all. If you had something I wanted, then I may have simulated some type of interest in you till I got whatever it was you had that I wanted, and then I cast you aside like so much trash, and I went on about my business. Never thought about you again until I was sober. My inventories have told me over the years that I spent my entire lifetime before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and for a long time after I was here. But ever one time in my life earning the word love to another human being who lived upon the face of this earth. People like me don't love any of them. Takers don't love. Takers take. Users don't love. Users use. And I'll tell you, if you spend very much of your life like I spent a lot of my life doing that, what will probably happen to you will happen to me if you're allowed to run unchecked for a period of time. At the ripe old age of 27 years old, I ended up crawling around in a cell in solitary confinement at a maximum security penitentiary, dipping in and out of total insanity, and there wasn't another living solitary soul upon the face of this earth who would send me a penny postcard. They were all gone, and they should be gone. And I had no right to have them back, and I still don't have any right to have them back. They still should be gone. I didn't understand what was going on in my life as I wandered around through life. The only thing in my life I ever cared about before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous was I stood in the old Los Angeles County Jail in 1951 with my baby brother. I don't really know whether I was capable of loving my baby brother or not, but I did care for him. I think that. I think that's the only person I ever cared anything about. And I stood in the old Los Angeles County Jail and my mother screamed at me through the visiting screen that I was a murderer. My 17-year-old brother had gotten into some of my poison and took an overdose of it and died. I didn't handle it very well. I handled like I handled everything. I got mad at it and made it go away. 
Three days later, I stood handcuffed between two detectives while they put in the ground the only thing in life that I cared anything about. With all the guilt and shame and humiliation, I stood at that gravesite handcuffed between two detectives while they buried him. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what, how to act. I knew I was supposed to act a certain way. I knew I was supposed to feel a certain something. I felt everything. I felt guilt. I felt remorse. I didn't know what they were. I just had a terrible knot in my gut and I couldn't look at anybody and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't have any relief and I didn't know what to do. I went on to the penitentiary and I stayed there four and a half years. I came out of there four and a half years sicker than I was when I went in there because just because I go somewhere and sit and don't drink does not mean I get any better. I get worse. I am an alcoholic. My disease gets worse with the passage of time even during long and total periods of abstinence. It doesn't get any better. It's a progressive illness. I get worse. So I came out of there sicker than I was when I went in, but I had an idea in my head. There was a psychiatrist at San Quentin that told me that people like me didn't change. He said I was doomed to die in an institution. He took me down and showed me a little green room. He says, you're going to end up here, hot shot. And I told him, not me, I'm different. Theme song of the alcohol. <laughs> I come off now that institution bound and determined I had that deal beaten. Six months later, I'm laying in a nut house, kicking and screaming. And that's when I made my round to some of the better laughing academies in the country, interviewing psychiatrists. <laughs> we used to have meaningful conversations. I'd sit there with my wraparound overcoat on, and we'd engage in meaningful conversations. And they'd talk to me about my mother, and I'd talk to them about their mother. And then <laughs> they introduced me to a thing called better living through electricity. <laughs> said I had a bad attitude. You'd have a bad attitude, too, if they did that to you, I'll tell you that. And what I hope and pray to God is my last interview with a psychiatrist happened to me in a federal government hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. If I live to be a thousand years old, I'll never forget that day. Because I'm through. Now, I don't know I'm through, but I'm through. I'm just, I just can't go no more. I can't, I can't inject enough anything in my system. I can't put enough alcohol in me. I can't put enough chemicals in my system to wipe away the memories of what I am. As long as I'm walking around and I'm awake, I'm in trouble and I don't stay, I don't stay gone very long anymore. The periods are just sketchy, and the nightmares are there, and I can't get rid of them, and I don't know what to do with it. And, I'm, and I wander in this day, and I sit down at this man's desk, across from his desk, and I look up against the wall, and, and I saw all of his plaques and his diplomas and his degrees, and I, and I guess there was a ray of hope that came into me right then in that moment. I thought, well, maybe this guy seems, maybe this guy will know. Maybe this is the answer to my answer to my problem. Maybe this is the end of my journey. Maybe this is where I get to to, to, to incorporate the dreams back in my life again. Maybe this is where I, I pick up all the pieces and go out there and become that become that baseball player that I always wanted to be or become that doctor or that lawyer or that architect that I always wanted to be or maybe that father or that husband or whatever it was. I were, those dreams that were long since gone that were in the back of my mind. Maybe that's when I pick up my dreams again and start because they were all gone by this time. The doctor hadn't said four words to me that day before everything and every little ray of hope I had, he threw clean out the window. He looked at me and he said, Johnny, if you didn't drink these things and swallow these things and smoke these things and shoot these things, you wouldn't have any problems. <laughs> when I'm a kid in the Hutchinson State Reform School, my counselor told me if I didn't drink, I'd be okay. In Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles, I was told the same thing. In the Whittier State Reform School, I was told the same thing. If I didn't drink and swallow and smoke and shoot, I'd be all right. In the Pacific Lodge Boys Home, I was told that. In San Quentin State Prison, in Folsom State Prison, I was told that. Everywhere I went, they told me that. But none of those people ever took into consideration was very simply this, that every time they told me that, I was as physically sober as I am right now. As physically sober. 
How many times I wanted to scream out, good God, doctor, don't you understand? Because they don't. I'm sorry. If you're not an alcoholic, you'll never understand why I drink. And if you're not an alcoholic, I'll never understand why you don't. It's very simple. I mean, really, I don't know. I just, you know, I don't, have you ever sit around here, some of these Alanon ladies talk? I mean, they go from one tragedy to another in their life. Man, I just sit there and listen. And, you know, the kids get sick and the husband gets drunk and the grandmother dies and Papa shoots Mama and on and on and on. And you're sitting there going, drink! Drink! You know why they don't drink? Because when all that's going on with them, that makes me dizzy. I'm going to tell you, if it didn't do any more than that for me, I wouldn't drink it either. Now, I don't know about you, but when all hell's breaking loose and I can't get rid of the nightmares and I don't know what to do and they're, they're baying at me and they're after me and everybody's after me and they're down on my throat, Want to go to Tijuana, baby? <laughs> and they wonder why we keep on drinking. <laughs> yeah. The alcoholics understand why. Because relief is just that far away. I didn't know that. But I knew he didn't know. You see, if you're... One of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my life when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody said to me a very simple thing. They said to me, an alcoholic said to me, I understand how you feel. Nobody had ever said that to me before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. They always said to me, don't do that. Why are you doing that? Don't you see what you're doing to yourself? And the one that really dries you up a tree, my Godson, look at all the potential that you have. Be potential, doctor. I need a drink. I was strapped down in a bed in the Los Angeles County Jail 30-some years ago, 128 pounds in yellow. And the doctor stood at the foot of my bed and told me I was going to die. I had had two years of doing to me exactly what I wanted to do to me anytime I wanted to do it to me. That's what I do when I run my own life. You talk a classic example of self-will run right, you're looking at it. All day passed and all night passed, the doctor come back into my room and picked up the chart looked at me the next morning and he said the same thing, son, you're going to die, there's nothing we can do for you. It's okay. The third day he came in there, there was some type of a terror gripped me. I don't ever remember having it before and I don't ever remember having it since. The idea came to me that I was going to live and not die. But I was going to get up out of that bed and go to the penitentiary and come back out and start that rat race all over again. And God knows I didn't want to do that. So I laid in that bed for 18 days and 18 nights. I didn't eat, sleep, drink, or do anything. I just laid there. And one night, because I knew nothing better to do, I screamed out the only prayer I'd ever said in my life. I said, oh, God, help me. I thought for a long, long time nothing had happened. There was no blinding flashes of light. Nobody come running down the hall with a dozen donuts saying, we got an A meeting down here, kid. <laughs> I just went to sleep a little while. It's amazing. I heard a young man in, 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 uh, in my home group the other night say something that was absolutely and totally uh, amazing to me that anybody uh, that new sober could come up with anything like that. He said that he asked God for help and God sent him people to show him what to do. 
Isn't that amazing? If that doesn't describe Alcoholics Anonymous with you, I'll put a nickel in your telephone, I'll tell you that. I asked God for help, and because there were no flashing, blinding flashes of light, and nothing really seemed to happen to me, uh, I just went to sleep for a little while, and I started to get better. And two short weeks later, I'm up running around the jail looking for some more of the poison to put me back in the bed I'd just gotten off of. There's a good reason for that. In the back of my mind, where my problem seems to be centered, is the knowledge that when I can't stand life on life's terms any longer, I can ingest something in my system and I'm okay. So I got loaded again. I stood in front of a superior court judge. He called me a blood-sucking parasite in society. He said I had no right being around decent people. There was a woman in the room who was pregnant with my child. I said if I cared, if she cared anything at all about her child, that I'd never be allowed to lay eyes on it. What that man said to me that day literally drove me insane. Because that's the first time I ever remember having nothing between me and me and me. Just me. That's the first time I remember really being understood what I really was. You see, the one thing I was never able to do before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous or since I've been here, I have never been able to hide me from me. Now, I've always known what kind of a scumbag I was. When I'm sober, i got the evidence to prove it. The faces of people I've harmed and the lives i destroyed through my selfish, self-centered existence in this thing called life, looking for a little comfort. And when a man told me that and I realized what I really was, I just went, I just flipped. I just, my brain exploded, so I spent the next nine months of my life crawling around this cell, drifting in and out of total insanity. And every once in a while I'd come to, scraping the food off the wall, where I'd thrown it up there in an insane rage. And that's what stumbled into your meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous on the fourth day of November, 1959. I didn't come here to get sober, or to stay sober, or to live the good life that I lived. Not at all. I came because the institution, I didn't let women come in there. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to smell perfume. And I've been honking and sniffing around here ever since. I, I mean, you open up the door, some of us sickos are going to come in there, for God's sake. I, I remember moving in and sitting down in the back row in what I lovingly like to call my throne of contempt. I had my coat collar up and my shades on because I was cool. If I'd have been any cooler when I got here, I'd have probably froze to death, for God's sake, but I was cool. Remember looking up on the backboard, I saw these two big gates, and I thought to myself, my God, I wandered into an anti-aircraft brigade. I didn't know what AA was. I'd never been called an alcoholic, and I'd never heard the word Alcoholics Anonymous before to my memory. So I said to this guy, what is this? He says, Alcoholics not? Well, I sunk down in my seat. Gangsters weren't supposed to be hanging out with them winos. They've been Gangsters Anonymous or Overhip Anonymous or Dope Beans Anonymous. Oh, God, I like that one. That's my, give me the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Dope Beans. Ah. It makes addicts seem kind of candy-ass, notice. You know what I mean? Don't be. Well, if you're going to be bad, you ought to be bad. I mean, you ought to not just quit drinking because you puke a little bit. Hang in there. <laughs> Give it everything you got, for Christ's sake. Now, you know you've got to work to be an alcoholic. You really do. I mean, you've got to hang in there. Because you puke a little bit, that shouldn't make you quit. You should just hang in there. You know, there's a big, a big theory that's going by that's uh, absolutely and totally false. People are trying to make people believe that you can induce alcoholism into people. No. If you're not an alcoholic, you ain't never going to be one. There ain't no way to make an alcoholic out of somebody who's not an alcoholic. It's a little bit like being pregnant. You either are or you ain't. And the longer you go, the more it shows. That's all. That's really true. Now, on the other hand, anybody can be a drug addict. All you got to do is in- inject them with, with drugs for a period of time, and you'll addict them to drugs. But everybody can't be an alcoholic. 
because everybody doesn't have the same reaction to alcohol that the alcoholic has. Now that I give you my medical definition of my magnificence, I'll, I'll go on what's really important. Now you've got to remember something. As I said in that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know what I was. I had played so many roles and so many games and lived so many lives out there in them streets and those institutions that I had not the slightest idea what I was. And alcohol was not one of them. And I sit around and I look around there and I said, well, I'll wait for these women to get up and tell their racy stories. Now, you've got to remember when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there weren't very many young, pretty girls in Alcoholics Anonymous. If they were, they weren't sending them up there to that penitentiary where I was at, I'll tell you that. And these old gals got up to talk that day and said they drank for a long time. You could look at them and know they'd been somewhere for a long time. <laughs> they said, I used to drink. I said, I'll bet you did. <laughs> Bad stuff, too. See, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm a walking encyclopedia of useless information. I know so damn much about what ain't true, I don't know what is true. I just sit back there. And these were the goofiest people I'd ever seen in my life. I never understood these people at all. I didn't know what they were doing. They were some type of weirdos. You know what they did? Every Sunday morning, a different group of people would get up early in the morning, get in their cars, drive 185 miles up those old back roads at their own expense, with no reward, buy their own gas, their own food, and come up here and spend two hours talking to a room full of people who didn't want to listen to them. Who sit back there and made fun of them. And I didn't understand that. But that's understandable. I'm a taker. Takers don't understand givers. I never saw a giver in my life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Everybody I ran with was a taker, just like me. I didn't hang out with givers. I never saw anybody giving anything just for the hell of giving it. I saw people taking everything. And so when I saw these people, they mystified me. I didn't know what they... I knew they had to get something. So I said to them one day, What kind of a sicko are you, anyhow? <laughs> you get some kind of kick out of coming up here looking at the animals in the cages? What's your deal? It gave me a typical Alcoholics Anonymous answer that made me want to strangle them. Oh, uh, when you can answer those questions, you won't have to ask them. <laughs> and then I sit in meetings and I'd hear dumb stuff like, I used to drink, now I don't drink anymore, and everything is wonderful. I'd sit back there in the inventory point and say to myself, I guess I'm not alcoholic then. I'm not drinking either, and I'm crazy. I wish I was alcoholic, I used to say. If I could just be alcoholic, then all I'd have to do is not drink, and I'd be okay. But there's something far more wrong with me than that. They say, you got to get busy in alcoholics, huh? I equated being busy with being in motion. I thought if you moved fast, they couldn't see you. So I run around like a chick with my head cut off. I picked up ashtrays, poured coffee, smiled at them. <laughs> Went back there and sit in the inventory point and died. I'm doing everything you told me to do, and I'm nuts. So I said to myself, logically, I'm not an alcoholic. So as an alcoholic, all I have to do is pick up these damned ashtrays and not drink. And I'd be wonderful like they are. Come wrong with me. And every time you ask one of these people anything, you know what they tell you? Oh, it's in the book. <laughs> What's in the book? Oh, it's there. You go look for it and you'll find it. Man, I've made a tremendous discovery since I've been sober. You want to hide anything from an alcoholic? Put it in the book. <laughs> they don't look there. You know why? I figured out a couple of reasons. There ain't no chapter into thinking. Which eliminates about three-fourths of us. There is no chapter in there that deals with issues. 
And there damn, damn sure ain't nothing in there that deals with healing the wounded inner child. What it is, very simply this, to the best of my knowledge, a set of spiritual principles, when practiced as a way of life, dispels the necessity to have to drink alcohol. That's all it is. There ain't anything any more intellectually stimulating than that, any more psychologically rewarding than that. It's a set of spiritual principles when practice is a way of life that spells the necessity to have to drink alcohol. And it doesn't say you have to practice them to perfection. Because if that was the case, this would be an empty room. Empty room. The best you ever get in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've discovered, is a basic human being. You rise any higher than that, you sleep. Don't ever get no better than that. Don't get special. We don't get good. We don't get wonderful. The reason I'm sober tonight is because of my rebellious nature. I've always been a rebel. I've always been a rebel without a cause. But for the first time in my life, when you told me it was in the book, I got a cause. I was going to work your program of recovery and prove to you I different wouldn't work for me. And somewhere sitting in a room with this man, doing what our program of recovery says is the fifth step, the single greatest event that ever happened to me in my entire lifetime, bar none, children being born, grandchildren being born, getting married, getting sober, coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, being born, mothers, fathers, everything. The most single greatest event that ever happened to me in my life happened to me that day. I heard myself admit to this man that I was an alcoholic. And from way down deep inside of me there came a freedom that I carry with me to this very instant. I stand here before you tonight I know exactly what's wrong with me. I am an alcoholic. I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. I'm not an alcoholic and anything. When I was an alcoholic and something, I separated me from you. I was not like you. I was different than you. I was better than you or worse than you. But I was not like you. I did not have to do it quite the way you do it. Because I'm different. Don't you understand that? When I became an alcoholic... And admitted to my innermost self, which was in our third chapter of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic. It became necessary for me, because this seems to be a matter of life and death, and it's my life, that I have to practice the only program of recovery for people like me in 4,000 years of recorded history. This is the only program that has ever worked for alcoholics of my type. This is it. So I have to do this. I'm not special. I'm just an alcoholic. And I came out of that penitentiary on the fourth day of June, 1961, to a world I didn't know anything about. No, I knew about the program of recovery called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because for the best of my ability, I had practiced and fulfilled the first nine steps of our program of recovery and found some type of joy. I knew nothing about living in a fellowship. I knew nothing about being around people. I, that's where I got my sponsor. I got a hold of a guy by the name of Norm Alpey. who come to the penitentiary to see me, and I asked him to be my sponsor. And I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, just do what I do. So I started going around and doing what he did. I went to meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. He told me to go to work. I said, what do you mean by that, Norm? <laughs> he said, work, W-O-R-K. I got me an interview with a guy working in an oil field, and I went down there, and the guy asked me a dumb question. He wanted to know what my social security card number was. I said, what's that? 
He said, you don't have a social security card? And I said, no, I don't. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 30. He said, you don't have a social security card? And I said, no, I don't. He said, why not? I said, I've never needed one. You know what he wanted? He wanted to know where I've been all these years. I told him you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You know what he did? He went down, took me down to the social security company, got me a social security card, and come back and put me to work. Boy, was that a drag. I couldn't go down to the club and tell them they didn't hire next convicts today. I couldn't snivel to my sponsor anymore. I just had to go to work. It was cruel, my sponsor. By that time, my wife had come back with this little girl I was never supposed to see. And I didn't know what to do when you get paid. I would never been paid before. So I used to stand off in the corner of the market and watch what they do when they get paid. You ever seen what they do? Here they come. And them little rug rats and throw them in them baskets backwards and push them down the aisles and fill it full of stuff. And I'm watching all this with great interest. So finally get a paycheck. Go home. Tell the wife, go to the market. She says, why? And I said, that's what they do when they get paid. She says, who are you talking about? And I said, them. Have you ever tried to explain them to them? They look at you kind of strange. You know what I mean? I guess I had one of them spiritual looks in my eyes like, we're going to the market, you bitch, or I'm okay. You know what I mean? All newcomers have that spiritual look in their eyes. At least they think it's spiritual. It's really a wave of insanity that floats in and out of there. It's called spiritual intoxication, for lack of a better word. We went to the market, an hour later, came home, somebody had stole her purse. Want to hear somebody scream? Listen to a thief when they get stolen from well, I ran and raved and jumped and hollered, and I tell you, if I could have caught that guy, you'd have another talker here tonight. I'd be up there in Folsom with the rest of the losers telling you, hey, it don't work. Yes, it does work. The only people who ever tell you, hey, it don't work, never worked it. I ain't never been anywhere else. I ain't never been to any other program. Why should I go to some imitation? Alcoholics Anonymous is a granddaddy. Alcoholics Anonymous is not just another 12-step program. This is the 12-step program, for Christ's sake. Alcoholics Anonymous is the deal. And the reason it works is because one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic here. And something happens between the two alcoholics. They've explained to me it's the language of the heart. What comes from the heart goes to the heart. What comes from the head goes to the head. And my head is damaged. It's centered in my own selfishness and my self-centeredness. I got, I was amazed. I, I listened to him. I got a copy of the original manuscript and I was listening to him read it at that, whatever that marathon was we had before this meeting. <laughs> I don't judge. I just report the facts. <laughs> They read that in the original manuscript that we tried to carry this message to others, particularly alcoholics. And the alcoholics made Bill take that to others out of there. Because there was a group of people in the 1840s who tried to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. At that time it was called the Washingtonian group, so wouldn't I call Alcoholics Anonymous to others. I'm not opposed to any other program. I don't care what anybody else does. Narcotic Anonymous. Adult children of alcoholics, overeaters anonymous, around the boat anonymous, up and down anonymous. I'm not really concerned. Just keep it the hell out of AA, please. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why they have all those other programs. 
When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd go to the meeting and sit down and they'd say, if you don't like it here, get the hell out of here. We don't need you. I'd say, oh, yes, you do, but you don't know it. <laughs> and I tell you, my rebellious neighborhood has kept me good. When I came to, when I came out of the penitentiary in 1961, they'd never seen anybody like me. They wrote letters to New York about me. Do you know what we've got out here on the coast? They sent him a typical answer. We have no opinion on that. <laughs> I'll tell you, can we throw him out of A? Well, I never said that I was anything but an alcoholic. Never. Most of the people who wrote the letters aren't here anymore. Right here I am, still sitting around here. I'm just too stupid to go anywhere else, I guess. I just... <laughs> but I, had a, I can't stand here and tell you that every meeting I've been to, I've... Uh, I sit around and cake, and every day I've lived has been a thing. I've, you know, I've, uh, I got problems that you wouldn't believe. But I don't bring them to Alcoholics Anonymous. I take my problems to my sponsor. I bring my solutions to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I was taught here. This is not some type of a garbage dump where we come in and dump our problems on somebody else's shoulder. That's what sponsorship is all about. This is a program where we come in here and share our experience, strength, and hope. So maybe somebody can pick it up. God, if I had to come in here and listen to some of this nonsense I hear in some of these discussion meetings, I wouldn't want to stay. I went to a meeting the other night. It was 20 minutes of group therapy. And I said, I'm sorry, I used to drink. God, that really threw him up and felt tizzy. I'll tell you that. I'm five years sober. Things are going along in my life pretty good. I'm doing like a lot of people do when they're four or five years sober. I'd, I'd reached another plateau. I had become somebody I was just so impressed with my magnificence. I drive up to the meeting in my new car, and people say, how you doing? I take them outside and show them my new car. That's how I'm doing, baby. Look at my new suit of clothes. When we go after the meeting, we go down to the Baskin Robin, ice cream sodas for the group. <laughs> but you see, I, I don't know, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I'm in some type of insanity because i got to go home that night and, and uh, to an empty house. And i got to start searching the neighborhood for two little girls who are babysitters, and i got to find these two little girls wherever they are. Then i got to put them in the car, and then i got to start searching different places for their mother. And sooner or later, ceremonious or unceremonious, I'd have to take her out of the bar. And I don't know what's going on because I got this monumental ego and I can't tell anybody it's a big man who's sober who's doing all this institutional work. They got these problems going at home. I mean, and so one night she said to me, you know, you're just a drag. That's what you are. You don't want to do anything but go to work and go to those meetings. So what are you teaching your children anyhow? You're gone all the time to those meetings or you're working. What are you teaching your children? I didn't know. She said, if you just come and, and go with me to the dances and to the bar, you can drink Coke. You know, I almost went once. I don't even like Coke, but I almost went. And one day I, uh, I told her I can't live like this anymore. Uh, something's going to have to change. Either I'm going to leave or you're going to leave. And I went off to work. And an hour later, they come and pull me off the job. She committed suicide. And I didn't handle that very well. I got mad at it. And sitting in meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm through all these puzzles. I didn't know what was going on. I got these two little girls. I got this job. I got to work. I, I'm buried in debt. I want to file bankruptcy. And normal, let me file bankruptcy. So that's it thieves way to do things and I don't know what to do I just I hear all this nonsense that I don't understand I'm sitting in meetings I'm angry and I'm hostile and I'm sitting in the back row and I tell you tell you what I'm hearing I'm hearing people get up to these podiums and say and there I was I was in a terrible fix and God just took care of everything and I'm sitting and I say wait a minute I, I guess I guess it's true 
I guess what my grandmother told me, that there is a God who punishes little boys who are bad. I guess it really is true that there is a God of judgment and retribution who sits around and favors some people and punishes other people. I guess that's true. And it seemed like every meeting I went to, somebody was one of them God giveaway kicks. You know what I mean? One girl got up there and said she hadn't made her house payment and she went and looked in the mailbox and there was a check there. And God, I said, Jesus, I really am bad dog. Man, I'm sitting there, I'm saying to myself, when am I going to get mine, man? Look what I'm doing. I'm going to institutions, I'm sponsoring people, I got a home group, I got a sponsor, I'm doing all, I'm going to get mine. You know how sick that is? I'm sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm expecting to be rewarded for receiving a gift. Now, I'm not only expecting it, I'm demanding it. Because I'm sober. I think that I'm somebody. I think that I'm special. I think that I'm one of God's chosen people because I had the, the good fortune to stumble into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous blindly one day. Because in a fit of madness, I screamed up a prayer in desperation, oh God, help me sometime. I thought I, I thought I'm supposed to get something. I never thought it dawn on me that I'd been given it all. I'd been given it all. Dawned on me one day. I went home one night in this little room that I lived in. I got on my hands and knees and I said that little third step prayer, God relieve me from the bondage cell. That I may be witness to those who see of your undying mercy and love. It was just that simple. And I got up and seemed like I've been walking toward the sunshine. What I'm trying to tell you is that every problem I've had since I've been sober and alcoholic synonymous had nothing to do with the outside world. It always had to do with my selfishness and my self-centeredness. It always had to do with my believing that I am at a point now where I deserve something because I'm special, because I don't drink. And if my sponsor taught me anything at all before he died, Norm Alvey, for 22 years, he taught me a very simple, he taught me that there wasn't a damn thing special about me just because I don't drink. He told me there wasn't a damn thing special about me just because I'm not locked up anymore. I used to scream at him in the middle of the night. I'd say, Norm, he'd say, what do you want, jackass? I'd say, my program ain't working. He'd say, why don't you try ours? But he never stopped there. He always explained it like, Jackass, your program never did work. It's true. My program never did work, and my program doesn't work today. Our program works. But I can tell you something. If our program works, yours doesn't. And if your program works, what the hell are you doing in an AA meeting? I mean, why? Why would you have to come here? If I had a program that worked, I'd be in Long Beach. So I'd be. This program works, so I have to come here. I used to scream at him in the middle of the night. You ever, you ever sponsor anybody that screams at you in the middle of the night? Dead in the middle of the night. No! He'd say, what do you want, jackass? Always the same thing. I'm a miracle. He'd say, you're what? I'm a miracle, I say. I just come from me. Somebody just said, I'm a miracle. I'm a miracle arm. He said, you jackass. What makes you think you're a miracle? I said, I just heard it. The name meeting. He said, no, you're not a miracle, jackass. Alcoholics Anonymous is a miracle. You're just a small part of it. It's true. I don't know what that does for another single solitary soul in this world. But what that's done for me over a period of almost 30 years, it kept me small enough to stay here. If I got to believe in that I was some type of miracle or some type of special shining in God's eyes, I'd have been gone a long, long time ago. But I thought I was special. But being just a small part of the miracle and knowing that there's nothing special about me and learning very simply about a God of my very own allows me to come and sit and take my seat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous on Monday night in my home group. 
It allows me on Monday night when the meeting is over to get up and put the chairs away in my home group. I'm the assistant chairman in my home group. <laughs> that means I get to help the chairman put the chairs away. <laughs> and the guy I sponsor is the chairman. For two minutes of his life, every Monday night, he's in charge. But then the chairs are all put away, and it's back to reality again. <laughs> I used to hang around with an old man by the name of Chuck Chamberlain who was like a father to me. Probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my life since I've been sober is that the last year, top of life, I got to go sit with him while he was sick and dying. I, I sit and, and talked to him and nursed him and put him on my lap and loved on him like he loved on me for 25 years. He was the only father I've ever known and I loved that man more than anybody I've ever loved in this world. He taught me the very essence of love. I learned to love him before I could ever love me, I tell you that. And he told me one time, I tried to read one of them pieces of propaganda that hangs out in some meetings, why we were chosen. He told me I wasn't chosen. He said to me, I was just one of God's kids. That's all I was. He said, if I'm a God's kid and you're a God's kid, then we're all God's kids, Johnny. He said things like, he makes the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. And I would say things to him, then how come I'm sober, Papa? How come I'm sober? I know people who are far better people than I'll ever be who aren't sober. How come I'm sober if I'm not special in God's eyes? He said, Johnny, it's very simple. You've come to understand you're one of God's kids and you act like it. So he treats you like it. That's really true. Now, how do God's kids act? I don't know. Where do you go find God's kids in? I don't know. I'm sure as I'm standing here that Norm Alfie was one of God's kids because he went about trying to help God's kids do things that need to be done. He went around in the world and he gave a little just for the hell of giving it. He went out and worked for a living and come home and went to Alcoholics Anonymous and gave it away for free and for fun because that's what he did night after night after night after night. I'm sure Chuck Chamberlain was one of God's kids because he did the same thing. He went out and he earned a living. He came home at night and he went to meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. He made this an advocation, not an occupation. He gave it away night after night after night. And I watched them. If that's the way God's kids act, and I'm sure they're God's kids, and I better act like that. I better learn how to answer telephones like Papa taught me. If the date's open, it belongs to you. i got to get my life simple enough that I can come into meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous and be a member here instead of one of the elite. i got to keep my life simple enough or I'll always have to keep it simple enough or I have to stay sober today, not because I've been sober. I don't get to stay sober for the things I did 30 years ago or how magnificent I was or how everything has risen up into my life. Because if I'm going to take credit for all the good things that's happened in my life, why don't I get credit for all the bad things that's happened in my life? I get credit for all the bad things that's happened in my life. They're all results of my selfishness and my self-centeredness, my inability, my business failures, my divorces, everything that's happened to me in my life since I've been sober. Probably the result of my own selfishness and my own self-centeredness. But what I've learned and what I've brought at home is today, that I just tell you very simply that, that Chuck said to me that, if you act like God's kid, you're teaching like God's kid. And it seemed like to me that for 30-some years of my life, I've acted more like God's kid than I have it. So I've learned to come and go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and do what I'm asked to do around here. Not because I've been sober for a long time, but because I'm an alcoholic and this is the day I get to stay sober. I don't know much about a lot of things. I really don't. But I do know that if I try to do what this program tells to do me, I don't have to drink. And I don't want to drink. I just don't want to drink anymore. I don't want to die drunk. I just want to be happy and I want to be peaceful. I hear people talk about comfort in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't ever want to be comfortable. I just want to live with some type of peace. 
That's all I want to do. I don't want to be wonderful or good or one of God's precious people. You see, my grandmother taught me about a God who punished little boys who were bad. My grandmother taught me about a God who favored some people above other people. My grandmother taught me about a lot of things that would frighten me to death. I couldn't live with them then, and I can't live with them now. I can't live with them all. My papa taught me that I am just one of God's kids, and so are you. And he said, you've come to understand you're one of God's kids, Johnny, and if you don't go tell people about it, they may not ever find out you are. And so somewhere in this thing, my life became very simply this. My primary purpose in life is to stay sober and carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. I don't have any other purpose in life. Oh, I have to work. I have to be self-supported through my own contribution. You know, i got to go around and, and be a father when I know how. i got to be a grandfather. i got four of the prettiest little grandsons you ever saw. i got to watch them bandits be born, man. i got to watch them come over to my house and put gum in my carpet slippers and knock my lamps over and break them. This is just wonderful. <laughs> the greatest thing in the world about being a grandfather is you play with them and send them home. That's the greatest thing about being a grandfather. See, I don't know a lot about a lot of things. I, I really don't. I, uh, I had something magnificent I was going to tell you, but I forgot what it was. I just, I was just going to rise you right up out of here and make you dance. You wouldn't even need the dance floor, but. You were ready, weren't you, Ken? Yeah. Yeah. Ken's been looking for me all day. I stood by him four times. He didn't even know it. Yeah. <laughs> when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I ran around with an old lady by the name of Myrtle Snyder. And she was a lovely old lady. She like a mother. My own mother uh, still drinks today. She's 87 years old. She drinks whiskey out of a bottle. But this old lady was like a mother to me, and I loved her to death. And one night I came home from working in this oil field, and I'm tired. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and somebody told me they had us. That Myrtle was in a hospital in San Bernardino. It's about 100 miles from where I live, up these old back roads. And she had a series of series of serious heart attacks that she was going to die. And, and if I wanted to see her, I better get there. So I got in my old beat-up car, and I, and I started driving down there. And all the way down there, I'm thinking about, what am I going to do when she goes? What am I going to say to her? How am I going to say it? How am I going to tell her I love her? How am I going to tell her all these things I don't know how to say? I, I never said it. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know how to express it. How do you tell somebody thank you? How do you thank them for every living thing you got you owe you? How do you tell people that? And I don't know how. And I get to this hospital and I, and I walk into this intensive care room and here's this magnificent old lady that I love to death sitting there with these things hanging from her, these tubes, that I, and I don't know what to do and she's in this deep coma. So I, I don't know what else to do. So for the first time in my entire life, I sit on the corner of her bed and I wept openly like a baby. For the first time in my life, I discovered the real meaning of loving and caring for another human being. I hear things in Alcoholics Anonymous that I don't understand. People say, I had to learn to love me before I could love you. And that's never been the case with me. I've always loved you. I've always loved you before I ever knew I loved you. And I loved her and that's the first thing. But sometimes today, I don't even like me. I wouldn't even know how to start loving me. I've never not loved you. And so I'm sitting there crying, and I don't know what to say. I say, Mom, I, I want to thank you, but I don't know how. And in a moment, her eyes opened, and she looked at me, and she had the prettiest, sparkling, clear blue eyes you've ever seen in your life. And she said this to me, the last thing she ever said to anybody. She said, Sweetheart, there's only one way that you can ever express your gratitude in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's remained a good example of what this program can do for you. Do you know if I had one prayer and one wish for the rest of my life? I would always wish 
that I will always be the best example of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I always will be. Thank you, and God bless you.